0: Welcome to Bite Size Battles The Roman soldiers looked at each other in panic as they realised they were lost, cut off from the main army of Crassus. It was dark and cold in the desert night and they could barely see each other's faces, but the wide whites of their eyes shone clearly with fear, their hurried shallow breaths filling the air with steam. The veterans were steelier than the new, raw recruits, though even they stared into the night shadows more intently than usual. But then, it wasn't what they saw which suddenly made them all freeze, it was what they heard. Horses. The Parthians they had realised just hours earlier were expert horsemen, probably the best they had seen. And sadly for the Romans, their horsemanship was easily matched by their skill with a bow. In fact, both abilities were so honed that the Parthians could shoot volleys of arrows from the backs of their horses, and while at full gallop. They would sweep into close range, launch a devastating barrage of thousands of arrows, and wheel away again well out of javelin range. The Romans, of course, often took cover in their testudo formations, but that left them unable to manoeuvre effectively, allowing Parthian cataphracts to absolutely thunder in with lances levelled from horses covered from head to hoof in heavy armour. Roman formations hit badly by horse archers were then utterly shattered by the cataphract charges. Once the cataphracts had finished causing carnage, the horse archers would sweep back in to the now-broken Roman units and pick them off from a short distance. When Crassus had finally sent his own son in to chase the horse archers off with Gallic cavalry, the result was catastrophic. The Gauls were wild and brave, charging with flying hair and grim abandon into the fray. But the Parthians simply fled before them, incredibly shooting backwards as they did, decimating the Gauls. Then the cataphracts hit what was left. There were barely any survivors, and when Crassus saw the head of his own son on a pike, it crushed whatever martial sense the man had left. As night had fallen, the general had ordered a retreat to the nearby town of Carré, but left 4,000 wounded Romans behind. It was sickening listening to the screams of their comrades when the Parthians found and slaughtered them. Then, in the chaotic retreat, they had become separated from the main army, around four cohorts of them. The centurions had grizzled at them to be quiet in the night. They would be all right, stick together and shut up. Don't sneeze, don't whisper, don't even fart. Maybe they would get lucky and the Parthians would simply bypass them in the dark. But now the sounds of hooves floated from the shadows and one man's little squeak of dismay was all that was needed to give them away. Quickly the sound of thousands of hooves surrounded them as their eyes strained to see and hearts hammered blood into their ears. But it all went suddenly quiet. The legionaries' chests heaved, swords were slid from scabbards, the grips on shields tightened. The tension was so palpable that the sudden hoot of an owl made men jump, and when one turned to look, his eye exploded with an arrow through it. Adrenaline erupted as thousands of arrows suddenly whistled in at impossible speed, thudding into shields with a force which rocked the legionaries backwards and finding feet, arms, necks and faces. More arrows joined the first volley until it quickly became an incessant cacophony of constant strikes on shieldwood, armour iron and flesh. The noise became strident when Parthian war drums abruptly joined the deafening orchestra. In the dark, still unable to see their assailants and overcome by the terror of it all, Some of the men broke and ran. Centurions snarled at them to get back in line, but it was too late. The panic had set in and soon almost every man in the four cohorts was peeling away, running desperately in the forlorn hope of safety. The thunder of hooves began again and soon more screams filled the air as lances and swords found the backs of the fleeing men. Just twenty Romans remained where they were, mostly centurions and hardened veterans of a hundred other battles. They would not abandon their honour and show their backs to these Parthian barbarians who refused to fight like men. No, they would die with their swords in their hands, and with that decision made, began to advance into the night, just as the first gleam of dawn brightened the horizon. As they did so, it became clear that they were advancing into over a thousand Parthians. But still, they did not falter. Closing ranks, they made a show of the Roman Wall of Red and Discipline, which had allowed them to conquer half the known world. They would not be cowed. All twenty marched shoulder to shoulder, knowing they did so to their deaths. Until they reached the Parthian line of horse archers, who for once had not began loosing volleys at them. Instead, to the Romans' amazement, they parted down the middle and gestured to this small knot of madmen that they were free to go. As they did so, they received nods of admiration for their courage. The rest of the Roman army did not fare so well, with three quarters of the 40,000 men either dead or captured. Only 10,000 escaped, marching back in shame and shock to Roman Syria. And their general wasn't with them. Crassus had been killed when a struggle broke out at a parley with the Parthian commander. When Julius Caesar heard of the disaster, it wasn't so much that 30,000 Roman soldiers had been lost that concerned him, although it probably did. It was that one of his triumvirate partners, and long-standing ally, Crassus, was dead. That left just himself and Pompey as the main power brokers of Rome, but their relationship had already started to fray. Crassus had almost been the glue keeping them together, but his death in 53 BC now accelerated what was already beginning to seem inevitable. Caesar and Pompey were the only two men of Rome who commanded huge armies, and if they broke, it was likely the peace of the Roman Republic would too. Among many other factors, Crassus' death led Julius Caesar to make the most important decision of his life. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Welcome to the final episode of The Rise of Julius Caesar. Rubicon. When Crassus died in the east, Vercingetorix hadn't even started his Gallic revolt yet. But when he did, Caesar had to deal with that pressing matter before he could devote himself to the issue of Pompey. But the fracture between Rome's two greatest generals began a year earlier, in 54 BC. One of the ways Caesar had bound Pompey to him was by giving Pompey his daughter Julia's hand in marriage. It's said that Pompey was besotted with his bride, who was possibly 30 years younger than he was. When they married in 59 BC, Pompey was 47. Julia could have been as young as 17. She was a woman of beauty and charm, and while their marriage was born of politics, it was apparently also one of love and happiness. But five years later, in 54 BC, Julia died in childbirth and their baby did not survive. Pompey was inconsolable. And he was jealous too. Julia's father Caesar had been winning incredible victories throughout Gaul and across the Rhine into Germania. He had even landed in Britannia and begun smashing them to bits too. The Roman plebs were loving it, and Caesar's name was shouted across the city. Pompey was also a great general. Indeed, his cognomen magnus meant great. But it had been years since he had last won blistering victories to the popular acclaim of the masses. For all his achievements, Pompey felt reduced in Caesar's shadow. So much so that when Caesar offered Pompey the hand of his niece in marriage, he spurned it. Instead marrying the daughter of one of Caesar's enemies. And then, of course, Crassus died in 53 BC. So within just around two years, Caesar's family connection to Pompey, Julia, had died. His triumvirate connection to Pompey, Crassus, had died. And Pompey was insanely jealous of Caesar's military glory and Roman popularity. Caesar's enemies in the Senate, named the Optimates, started to smell blood in the water. They had been looking at ways to bring Caesar to heel for years, and now one of his most powerful supporters was dead, and the other was starting to look pretty indifferent towards his erstwhile ally. Optimates is Latin for best ones, or more simply put, aristocrats or nobles they stood for the entrenchment and enlargement of their own power, privilege and wealth through senatorial law. Their enemies in the Senate were the Populares, or Populists, those senators who wanted to modernise Rome and give more power to the people, who of course would then give power right back to the Populists. So, the Optimates and Populists battled in the Senate and had done for decades. Caesar was a populist, and so was Pompey. Or at least he had been. Because the optimates now started whispering poison into his ear and pointing it directly at Caesar. Pompey didn't exactly fall into the arms of the optimates, but he did begin to distance himself from Caesar, supporting legislation he wouldn't usually have. And the most crucial piece of legislation he nodded through came about from a brawl between two notorious gangsters. Clodius was one, the same Clodius we met in episode 3, the man who had caused a scandal by dressing as a woman to gain access to the women-only festival of Bonadia, where he had at least tried to seduce Caesar's wife at the time. Caesar had divorced his wife for the scandal, but he needed Clodius because they shared a dislike of Cicero so Caesar had made him a pleb just so he could run for tribune and then have Cicero exiled. Clodius was a rogue, troublemaker and thug, and he was travelling north along the Appian Way in 52 BC with a band of around 30 armed slaves as a bodyguard. Coming the other way was the second notorious gangster, his urban gang rival, Milo and his own group of armed cutthroats, which numbered at least two gladiators. Clodius, of course, was a supporter of Caesar and the Populists, while Milo supported the Optimates. For years, the two had been engaged in vicious gang warfare in the streets and alleys of Rome. In other words, they didn't like each other very much. When they crossed paths on the Appian Way, At first, the two of them satisfied themselves with hurling abuse at one another, with a few jokes about each other's mums thrown in for extra hurt. But when the reputations of their mothers had been soiled long enough and they were just about to part ways, a fight broke out between two of the bodyguards and suddenly they all piled in, knives and clubs out in an instant. Ancient fights were proper brawls, so of course one of Milo's gladiators had brought a javelin along with him. He now launched it into Clodius' shoulder, who went down hard and was rushed to a roadside inn. Milo realised that things had gone too far. Allowing the grunts to kill each other was one thing, but killing Clodius, a tribune, would be reckless and damaging for him but he also reasoned that a dead Clodius would be easier to deal with than a live, wounded and enraged one bent on revenge. So he stormed into the inn, dragged the crippled Clodius out, and clubbed him to death in the street. Clodius' supporters in Rome erupted in riots when they heard of his murder and burned the Senate House, believing the whole thing to have been an optimates inspired assassination. The violence was so great that the Senate pleaded with Pompey to use force to crush it and offered him a sole consulship to give it legitimacy. Pompey duly took command, raised troops and did use force to quell the unrest. But he also tried Milo in a court packed with his own chosen men, who found him guilty of the murder and exiled him, which went a long way to appeasing Clodius' supporters. The significance of all this was that now Pompey was sole consul, and indebted to the optimates for his new power. And he now, with the optimates right at his back, used that power to hurt Caesar. The optimates still hated Caesar for circumventing republican traditions and senatorial customs during his own time as consul, seven years earlier and there was no greater demonstration of his disdain for the power and position of the Senate than his actions in Gaul. When the Helvetii tribe had first gone walkabout and the Aedui had appealed for help, the Senate had granted permission for Caesar to put the Helvetii in their place and send them back where they came from. But pretty much every act that Caesar took from then on was without the Senate's permission, His invasions of Germania and Britannia shocked the rulers of Rome, but his outright conquest of Gaul was the real slap in the face. It was the Roman Senate who decided which lands should be invaded and conquered, and it was the Senate who would appoint the generals to do it. For one man to simply take it upon himself to do so was Anathema, and showed nothing but scorn for the way the Republic was supposed to be run. So, the optimates were constantly looking at ways they could prosecute Caesar for breaking their laws. The only slight problem was that Caesar, as proconsular governor of three provinces, held immunity from prosecution until his term ended in 49 BC. But they would still be ready when it did. Caesar, of course, was well aware of all this and wanted to be elected consul for the second time as soon as his governorship ended, giving him another year's immunity, during which time he could sort his political enemies out one way or another. But here was the kicker. Candidates for consul had to be present in Rome in order to stand, and by entering Rome, you by law gave up any immunity from prosecution. Obviously if Caesar did that, He'd be hounded by the rabid optimates as soon as he stepped over the city limits, and so bound up in litigation that any attempt at running for consul would be impossible. He'd spend the rest of his life defending himself in law courts, banged up in prison or in exile. So Caesar asked for permission to run for consul in absentia, from his provinces in Gaul. The Optimates pretty much foamed at the mouth at that, and when Caesar's implacable enemy Cato spoke against it, Pompey did not rise in Caesar's support. He was still jealous of Caesar's successes and without the influence of either Julia or Crassus, and he now as sole consul allowed a bill to pass confirming that candidates for the consulship did have to be present in Rome. By doing so, he ruined Caesar's chances of becoming consul and having the immunity that came with it. He must have been thinking about how good it would be when Caesar was prosecuted for all his crimes and then he, Pompey, would alone be the greatest man of Rome. Whatever the case, the writing was on the wall. Pompey has still not completely broken with Caesar but the cracks in their relationship now opened into crevices, and the optimates would not stop until they were chasms. Neither Caesar nor Pompey wanted war at this point, but Caesar could feel the wind turning. Effectively blocked from running for consul, he decided to shore up his base of support among the common people of Rome. For years, he had been sending reports of his conquests in Gaul to the Senate, and he now published them in a gripping memoir simply named The Gallic War. Electrifying battles and mysterious wild barbarians, exotic tales of strange faraway lands, and of course, the ultimate triumph of Roman discipline, arms and culture. The plebs loved it and Caesar knew if the time came, he would be welcomed back in Rome. And that time might come soon, because one of the consuls who took over from Pompey in 51 BC was a certain Marcus Claudius Marcellus, a man who devoted himself to Caesar's destruction. He read Caesar's Gallic War with interested disdain, and countered that if Caesar had conquered Gaul so completely, He no longer needed his armies or his governorships. He put a bill before the Senate demanding Caesar disband his forces and return to Rome. Now. Caesar was incensed. He had well-paid tribunes block the move, but this was now obviously becoming a bitter political war of vendetta. And the next attack came a year later in 50 BC. The Parthians were pressing into Roman Syria, and the Senate decided to send two legions there to shore it up. Pompey offered to send one of his as long as Caesar did the same. The little fly in the ointment of this entirely fair and reasonable suggestion was that Pompey would be sending a legion that he had loaned to Caesar years before. It actually meant then that Caesar suddenly lost two legions. Pompey's loan and one of his own. Even now, though, Caesar still did not break with Rome. He let the legions go knowing he was weakened, but before they left he gave each man a very nice sum of gold. You never know, he thought, how useful that might be if he was ever to face these legions on the battlefield in the future. In the end, the two legions weren't even needed in the east, and Marcellus ensured they didn't return to Caesar, but demanded they stay in Italy under Pompey's command. Caesar smiled wryly at the move, and quietly began recruiting more troops from his provinces. Rumours and counter-rumours now began swirling throughout the Republic, and they were spreading like wildfire. All Caesar wanted to do was stand for consul and absentia, the Senate were being recklessly obstructive. No, Caesar hates the Republic and he makes up the rules as he goes along to suit himself. The Senate's wrong, no Caesar is. People started picking sides even now as the tension began to really ratchet up. Marcellus twisted the tension further still by now advocating in the Senate for a law which would compel new magistrates to take over from Caesar's governorships immediately he was still desperate to force Caesar to return to Rome as a private citizen, without the protection of immunity or his army. But Caesar had expected this move and had a counter-proposal waiting. Through his supporters in the Senate, he said that yes, incredibly, he was willing to lay down his governorships and his armies, as long as Pompey did the same. It was a high-risk but shrewd move. If the Senate agreed, he would be stripped of immunity and prosecuted, but he gambled that Pompey would balk at the suggestion. Pompey governed Spain at the time and had several legions there, along with more in Italy and more still in the east. So while the moderates in the Senate supported Caesar in what to them looked like a highly reasonable move, Pompey and the Optimates blocked it saying a big, fat no. In the end, though, Caesar's supporters got their way, eventually forcing the legislation through the Senate by 370 votes to just 22. Both Caesar and Pompey were now compelled by law to give up their armies. It seemed, just at the last moment, that civil war was averted. What was Caesar doing, though? He had voluntarily given up his immunity and his legions, but once again he had guessed that the optimates would not allow Pompey to give up his. In other words, Caesar was forcing their hand, seeing how far they would go and causing them, not he, to light the spark which ignited the civil war. And that spark came the very next day. The Consuls, Marcellus and Crewe ignored the Senate vote requiring Pompey to disband his armies and made up a pack of lies that Caesar was marching south across the Alps with ten legions. Marching that is, on Rome. In a Roman world full of illegal moves, this one took the biscuit. Skipping over both the Tribunes and the Senate. The consuls personally authorised Pompey to take command of the two legions already in Italy, raise more, and crush Caesar by any means necessary. The optimates' magic had worked like a charm. Pompey, of course, presented with the opportunity to rescue Rome from a threat like this, jumped at the chance. The Senate had just effectively declared war on Julius Caesar. But Caesar wasn't marching on Rome with ten legions. He was sitting in northern Italy with just one. And he could now rightly claim that the Optimates and Pompey had broken their end of the bargain and kept their troops. He then could keep his. He moved with his one legion to Ravenna, close to the river Rubicon, the traditional border of Roman Italy beyond which no general could cross with an army without Senate permission. Caesar simultaneously sent out messengers to Gaul, calling two more legions to come to him as soon as they could, and for another three to stand ready. Caesar, in other words, was mobilising, and he now wrote an ultimatum to the Senate. He offered again to dismiss his troops if Pompey would do the same, as long as he would be allowed to become consul if they refused he said he would be forced to defend his personal honour the senate was shocked so much so they declared julius caesar hostis an enemy of rome on the 1st of january 49 bc caesar's supporters in the senate including mark antony were thrown out and they made their way now to join him at Ravenna. Cicero was aghast as the pack of cards began to fall, and went into fever mode trying to avert civil war. He shuttled back and forth between Caesar and Pompey, trying to find a solution which would satisfy everyone. Caesar still actually hoped to avoid war, Even now, he offered to give up most of his command if he would be left with Cisalpine Gaul and just two legions. Pompey rejected this outright. So Caesar said he would be willing to be left with Illyricum instead and just one legion. At this, Pompey hesitated, sensing perhaps that Caesar was, after all, trying to be reasonable. But Cato sprang up from his seat in the Senate House like a maddened jackrabbit, and screamed that Pompey would have to be a blithering idiot if he was seduced by Caesar's trickery. Once again, the Optimates got in the way of Pompey's better judgement and won the argument. The peace talks collapsed. So, on January 10th, 49 BC, Caesar made his way to the banks of the Rubicon, To cross would be to declare war on the Eternal City, the Roman Republic, all that he had known and loved and worked so hard to improve. But hadn't the Senate already declared war on him? What other choice did he have? If he gave in, he would be ruined, and so too would Rome. The Optimates would rule Rome, with the populists hounded out, killed or exiled but caesar believed too rightly or wrongly that his conquest of gaul had made him the first man of rome the senate were being ungrateful disrespectful and outright aggressive towards him they're better more than once he was heard to have said now that i'm the greatest man in rome it will be more difficult to push me down to second place than it would be to push a second rank man to the bottom At the Rubicon, he still hesitated, spending the day musing about what was best, whilst dining with friends and taking long walks so that senatorial spies would have nothing to report to their masters. He knew that even now Pompey would be gathering his forces from Spain, Italy and the East. In numbers alone, they would dwarf what Caesar could bring to the field. If he allowed them to gather together, he would simply be overwhelmed by sheer numbers. After all, these weren't hordes of barbarian Gauls, they were hordes of Roman legions, led by Pompey the Great. He decided then that he had to gamble, and hoped that Fortuna favoured him as he believed she had throughout his life. He wouldn't even wait for the two legions from Gaul to arrive, Instead, he would risk everything by making a lightning dash south to Rome with the one legion he had, in the belief that speed and surprise would knock Pompey and the Optimates into a panic and flee. And if they didn't, he'd have to find a way to defeat two legions with just one, and those two were the two he had paid handsomely when they left him, thinking they were going east. As evening drew near, he gave a stirring speech to the men of the 13th Legion, the one legion with him. He listed all the wrongs the Senate had done to him, how they had swatted away his hand of friendship and peace a hundred times, how they had insulted him and forced him into a corner. Even yet, he told them, we may draw back. But once across that little bridge, the whole issue will be by the sword. It was excellent stuff from Caesar, knowing that they hung on his every word. He turned, hesitated just once more, knowing that there was no going back once he stepped through the river. He stared at the water running past for a moment, sparkling in the rising moon. His men heard him say, almost in a dreamlike trance, the die is cast as he suddenly, willfully and confidently strode into the water of the Rubicon and into civil war. The Roman world would never be the same again. This series on Julius Caesar will be followed at some point by a sequel on his civil wars. If you'd like to listen to that, drop me a direct message on Instagram letting me know or you can write me an email at bitesizebattles at gmail.com. Always love to hear from you. I'm Andrew McKenzie, and if you've enjoyed this series, The Rise of Julius Caesar, please support me in what I do by giving a little each month to keep this project, the Bite Size Battles podcast, going. You can do so through the link on our Instagram page and following the Support Us link. Other ways you can support me are by grabbing yourselves some of the merchandise from our website, bitesizebattles.com, shouting out to everyone you know that they should check this podcast out, leave us 5-star reviews anywhere you can, and of course, keep tuning in. You're all part of a 40-nation community, and we're going from strength to strength. I appreciate you all. Please do help me to continue making these podcasts by supporting Bite Size Battles. This series also wouldn't have been possible without the fantastic primary research of the first class classicist Erica Stevenson. You can follow her on Instagram at Moaninc, which is M O A N I N C. And finally, This whole series is dedicated to the first person who followed Bite Size Battles, the first person who supported it, and the person who never stopped encouraging me in the early days, Ree O'Gerrity. Ree sadly passed away recently, and despite the fact that she was a perfect stranger from Australia, she was a crucial part of getting Bite Size Battles going and keeping me going. Thank you Ree. this is for you. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thank you all for listening. See you soon.